Hi, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Rob. We've been mates since we met at drama school in 2004. We're both actors, and for the last 10 years we've been working in all sorts of productions, from small fringe shows to big arena tours. We love the theatre, so we thought we would make a podcast to bring you a series of inspiring conversations with interesting people from the world of theatre. So this is our podcast. Welcome to Inside the West End. Inside the West End, with Ben Morris and Rob Copeland. Thank you for downloading episode 26 of Inside the West End. Follow us on Twitter at Inside West End. Find our page on Facebook, Inside the West End Podcast. And if you want to get in contact, then email InsideTheWestEnd at gmail.com. Coming up, we speak to one of the UK's most prominent theatre critics, Mark Shenton. Mark Shenton is a theatre critic, commentator and interviewer. He writes regularly for The Stage newspaper, including a daily blog. He's also an associate editor at The Stage and also joint lead theatre critic. He also writes and reviews for London Theatre Guide and is the London correspondent for Playbill.com, for whom he writes daily news stories. As an interviewer, he's conducted public platform interviews at places like the National Theatre, the Donmar Warehouse and the Stratford East Theatre. Royal. And on top of all of this, he's also currently chairman of the drama section of the Critics Circle. So basically, in terms of theatre critics, Mark, in the words of Ron Burgundy, is kind of a big deal. This is another episode which we've gone recorded because you guys asked us to. So if there's anyone else that you would like us to try and get hold of, then do tweet us. We do read every single tweet and we will listen to you couple of things before you hear the conversation. Uh, I'm now on tour with The Commitments, so going forward, our podcast episodes will be released every two weeks. So we are continuing Inside the West End podcast, but it is going to be every two weeks. Also, this is your bi-weekly reminder, if you do your shopping via Amazon, then please help us support our podcast at no extra cost to you by heading to InsideTheWestEnd.com first. Click on any of the Amazon adverts. It takes you straight to the main site. Your shopping costs you exactly the same as normal. But Amazon give us a small kickback as a thank you. Christmas is round the corner. Get ahead of the game now. Now here's the conversation with Mark Shenton. This is Mark Shenton and you're listening to Inside the West End. Mark Shenton, welcome to Inside the West End. Hello, hi. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us. You are one of the most influential voices in theatre as a journalist of the art. I certainly don't see it myself that way, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's nice, nice for you to say it. But uh, uh, I wear it lightly, I, I hope. So, theatre critic, uh, editor, interviewer, blogger. The list uh, is huge in theatre. Your voice is listened to in the industry. Before we hear about journalist Mark Shenton, we'd love to take you right back and hear about the young Mark Shenton. Okay, great. Well, I was born and brought up in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, and uh, so a completely different place to where I am now. Um, and But it was actually, strangely enough, Johannesburg where I discovered the theatre, aged 14. Um, uh, I was taken on a school trip 
to I went to a, a private school in Johannesburg called St John's, um, and was taken on a school trip to see the Deep Blue Sea, a Terence Rattigan play, which is in fact being revived at the National as we speak, with uh, uh, Helen McCrory starring in it. Um, and the, I, my eyes just opened. I mean, I just saw this new form of form of entertainment. That um, I'd been a big movie buff growing up until I was fourteen, and I, I ran a, a film club at at school and things like that. Um, but suddenly. Theatre theater was, was, was filmed with, but without, without titles at the front and real and living. And somehow this play connected to me in a way that I still to this day do not really understand because it's, it still remains one of my favourite plays. But it's a play all about unrequited love and how uh, it's actually written by a gay man. About, uh, uh, it's a, in code, it's written that he, he, Terence Rattigan, had a relationship with somebody um, and it was an unrequited love relationship. And um, anyway, and it ends catastrophically in the play um she can try to commit suicide um but um i at that point when i was 14 i had no idea what unrequited love was all about and yet somehow it struck this deep chord and you know now now i totally get the play entirely you ran a film club yes what, <laughs> what films were you showing and who was coming to see them oh uh, well it was a school film club and what was really interesting is that there were two films uh, clubs um, at the school one was run by my, my, my one of my other best friends who turned out to be a filmmaker he went to ucla film school after that and he put on all the art house movies and i showed the commercial movies um I mean, this was the days before dvds and vcrs you'd hire uh, have a have a, one of those old clanky projectors and hire the these these huge reels and show them there um and i actually i can't really remember what the films were but he he's told i told me recently that i was the commercial man i would show all the commercial movies and he would show the art house stuff was anyone else in your family involved in the arts or creative not not, not really um, um uh, my father was a uh, a draftsman um my mother uh, ran ran a shop um and uh, my brother has become a vet so um there, there was no art arts background in there um i mean i did do a school school plays i was in midsummer night's dream at school um and uh there was another play whose name i can't remember um but I wasn't really, I really wasn't into the performing side. I mean, very often, sometimes critics are sorted performers or sorted directors, but I was never into that. I, from a very early age, I, I discovered that I just liked to go to the theatre, um, and there's no better way to go to the theatre. If you become what I've become, which is a theatre addict, there's no better way to, 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 to go to the theatre than as a theatre critic, because you get free tickets, you get great seats, <laughs> and a free programme. Um, but... Um, Actually, and this is the really key point, is that having done the, having, see, having discovered the theatre at the age of 14 with the Deep Blue Sea, there was a local newspaper in South Africa, it's still there, called The Star, um, and they ran an amateur theatre competition, a theatre critic competition. Um, and I must have been 15 at this point. And it, was, it wasn't only for kids, it was for, you know, for anybody to enter. And there was a play that I'd seen at uh, a theatre in Johannesburg called Who Killed uh, Agatha Christie? And Agatha Christie was the name of a what was was the the, the nickname of a theatre critic. So it was about a murder of a theatre critic, would you believe? And they they sent um, they they asked, invited reviews of this play. I entered age fifteen, and I won the competition against the adult competition. And I suppose that must have been the moment when I decided that's what I had to become. Was English a strength 
for you at school? Yeah, yeah. I, did, I, did, I used to love reading, and I and, and English was my best subject. Uh, I was useless at maths and completely hopeless at sciences. Um, but having said that, I never I never read English at university. I ended up reading law at university. So go figure. Um, was your love of English something that was inherent in you, or was it learned? Well, I th- I th- it, for me, it's all come from the theatre actually. Um, so it was. It, it didn't start really with literature. It started with the theatre and and interacting with with words and and stories in the th- in theatre. I much prefer plays to reading. Uh, I just really do. Um, there's a, there was a, I once heard a great story about English film critics that English film critics um, uh, love foreign movies because they're, because they, they hate films but they love reading. <laughs> That's why they like foreign movies. They like the subtitles. Um, but that doesn't apply to me. I I, I just love the theatre. I, I love the living experience of it and uh, and the fact that you're in the room when the story's happening. And as a teenager, away from the theatre, away from the writing, away yeah. from school even, what did you have hobbies? Were you popular? What was your um, world? Yeah, well, it, that's so hard to say because I was born and brought up in South Africa, which is a very sporty culture. I was not a sporty person at all. Um, so I was, I, I kind of lived in my own little little world. And of course, the other thing, which I, I now realise with hindsight, of course, at the time I didn't know that, was growing up gay um, in a very macho society. And this was, we're talking about the, the 60s and in the early 70s. You're talking about a time when, when, you know, when you suppressed all that stuff. So I think, I think that that came at quite a cost. Um, and that's why theatre... In, from so many people is a great outlet because you know you you can express the the inexpressible, um, and in fact, as I said, with that, I mean, with with now that I know what the DPC is all about, um, that play is all about gay, gay. It was written by a gay man about gay men, so it's it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Were you opinionated? Yes. Did that ever get you into trouble? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think I think I was. I must have been quite right, I think. Um, and I, I, I remember, I remember one of the things I did at school is I used to write, we used to, for, for, for English classes, we used to have to write book reviews. And I remember being good at that. I was good at distilling a, a, a book into a review. But did, did be having opinions on life in general uh, yeah, well, must have got you in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's interesting, in South, in, in, again, in South Africa, was, was I got very uh, early on, I, I mean, I, I hope I don't want to oversell this, but... Early on, I did get a, become very aware of the inequality of the situation we were living in, mm. um, because it was still a seg- entirely entirely segregated society, um, and indeed that's one of the reason why we, I mean we we ended up moving to back to Britain. My my father's British anyway, and my mother's Polish, as I said, and uh, we. Um, it was around the time of uh, 1976 was the Soweto riots and things started to look really uncertain there. And also, my brother and I, being male, um, had both would have had to do compulsory military service. And that would have been involved actually fighting a border war because they were South Africa was fighting border wars in Angola. And this was all, of course, this was all the communist threat as well. It was all this nonsense. Very Trump-like, actually. Um, um, but, you know, we, my parents didn't want us to have to do military service for, for, for something that we didn't believe in. So that's why we came to England. So what age were you when you moved to England? 16. 16. So yeah. you finished A-levels in the UK? UK, yeah. So I came to England um, March 1979 um, and... First Saturday I was in town, we went to Drury Lane, Theatre Royal Drury Lane, and saw the last matinee of a chorus line. Um, I'll never forget that. It was around March the 25th. I can't, I'll look up the date, but it was around about then. Um, and I remember, this was great, great. I remember buying a 50p ticket, which was, should have been in the gallery, but actually was the, they moved us down to the back of the stalls. So the very first show I saw in London was at Drury Lane, it was a chorus line, which of course is again, one of my favourite shows of, of all time. 
And was that the first musical you saw? No, I'd seen musicals in South Africa. Um, there, there was a, a impresario in South Africa called Joan, uh, a, a couple called Louis Burke and Joan Brickhill, and they used to put on musicals in Johannesburg. Um, funnily enough, ten some years later, my one of my first trips to New York, they actually took on one of their musicals to Meet Me in St. Louis, and broad, uh, they took that to Broadway. Um, not from South Africa, but they produced that on Broadway. It was not, not a success. But anyway, there were early musicals that I did see in Johannesburg. Pippin's another one I remember seeing in Johannesburg and loving. I still have the cast album, the original cast album from South Africa for, for Pippin. Um, and it, that's a favourite show to this day. At that age, seeing your first West End show... Yeah. Did you notice a marked difference in calibre, standards between the production in general and what you'd seen before in South Africa? Well, South Africa's standards were not bad. I mean, I, I, it seems to me now. I mean, I, I maybe may, maybe they weren't that great. But it was quite, they were quite small, smaller theatres. Oh, and I, by the way, I remember one thing. During my time growing up, we didn't have TV growing up. And, uh, and then the TV came in when I was about 12. And... So um, this, the die was so cast because this friend, the friend of the, the rival to the film, rival film society, and I, did a review of a of a Johannesburg musical, Artie Mahitabel, um, and we reviewed it for TV. The two of us, these two kids, crazy. You mentioned earlier that you studied uh, law. You went on and yes. studied at Corpus Christi College in Cambridge. Yes. Did you always have a view to working at in some form in the theatre? Absolutely, absolutely. So why study law? Absolutely. Well, well, one of the things was when I I, I did my o, o levels in a year, my A levels in another year. Uh, I, so I did those in a, in a great rush, um, and uh, and then had a year out actually before I went to university. Um, but um, I, when I applied to to, I just thought everyone's got an English degree. Everybody in the theatre's got an English degree. But we actually recently found the prospectus that I applied from, and I in it I circled certain um, uh, words uh, and I wrote good for theatre and, and law was good for theatre I, I thought I, in fact it's proved not to be the case that law was not actually the best thing to have done but Cambridge is a really good place to be um, because you know you're around a lot of theatre um, yeah, the, the, the number of the last three direct artistic directors of the National before Rufus Norris were all Cambridge educated so you know uh, Peter Hall and uh, Richard Eyre and Nick Heitner so it, it, it's a a great place to, to discover theatre and in fact in my year in my college uh, one of my contemporaries um, I was in a very small college and 270 uh, people a year I, I get admitted to Corpus and um, one of my contemporaries was uh, Hugh Bonville uh, he was then Hugh Williams but now Lord Grantham um, <laughs> um, and uh, and in fact it's because of him that I in my first year in Cambridge you're allowed to um, split your tripe they call them tripos uh, three parts to your degree so first year second year third year and you don't have to stay the same the same subject all three years and when I arrived I thought fuck I've got to I kind of cope with law for three years and Hugh was doing theology and I said oh that sounds easy um so I did theology for a year thanks to Hugh Williams <laughs> Hugh Bonville so you you said earlier your family uh, are not from an art or creative no. background. Were they supportive of your passion and love for it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, well, I think I think it was unstoppable. I mean, although having said that, they were actually worth supportive because I remember they did used to take me to the theatre once I discovered this. Because got bitten by the bug. I mean, right from the beginning, the moment I was bitten by the bug, I was then became became obsessed, and I would see absolutely everything, everything in Johannesburg that I could possibly see, um, and they would take me. So clearly, they they, they, they were they were good parents from that point of view. And whilst at university. 
university, uh, you were producing theatre as well yeah. as reviewing. Absolutely. Were you ever tempted to go down the producer line? I, I, w- I would have been. Um, it, it's very hard work, I think. And I, 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 it's something I've still toyed with even to this day. Because funny enough, arts journalism is in a state of progressive collapse, um, certainly professionally speaking. Getting paid to do it is, is, is quite hard. Um, and earning a living this way is really hard. Um and I, you know, who knows what the future will hold. So actually, a few years ago, I started to think about going to to do producing again. I'm, you know, because I, I know lots of producers. Um, I mean, I certainly think I can be part of a development process of of, of putting together a show. Um, since I know I've seen enough musicals and I lo- love them enough. Um, but but actually, ultimately, I the, the, the going to the theatre all the time as I do at the moment is well, one out. But uh, yeah, Cambridge, I I produced with. Um, uh, Quite a few people who've become quite significant. Um, Tim Supple, who ran the Young Vic at one point, um, has worked with the RSC and so on. I produced a season of plays with him. Uh, Julius Green, who worked for Bill Kenwright, um, uh, and is a pretty independent producer now himself. He directed and I produced his shows. Uh, Nick Ward, who had a few plays on at the National and is now um, uh, a busker. He's now a street busker. He he, he went from um, uh, having plays on at the Cottesloe um, uh, and the Royal Court, and he now lives makes his living as a street busker. Uh, so we've all taken different paths. You mentioned a moment ago that uh, you feel earning earning a, a living critiquing work. It's a lot harder now. Yeah. In your career, social media has appeared yeah. uh, and it's exploded. Yeah. Uh, there are hundreds of people writing their opinions, writing blogs, recording podcasts like yeah. we are about the subject and putting it out there in things where it's, it's free to read it. Um, how has this affected the career of a critic well the the world has changed irrevocably and you know i'm not going to fight progress that's 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 what's happened everybody has an opinion but as everyone has always had an opinion but everyone now has the means to broadcast it and and uh and to reach an audience um if you're good enough i mean i think i always think twitter is sort of the ultimate democracy because um you're only followed if you're saying interesting things and people only follow you know so you can broadcast as much shout as much as you want but no one's listening if you if you if you're not worth listening to so everyone's got this these channels these outlets in which to to say stuff um and as a result in a sense professional critics have been slightly undermined by that but i think that actually the net effect of all the noise there's an awful lot of noise out there the cacophony of voices all shouting at once somebody has to rise above that noise and that's when i think the professional critic who who exercises his his or her job responsibly um and 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 in diversely because you i think you have to do this job on different lots of different ways and lots of different platforms um is 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 still going to really count i mean one of the things i've had to do um and i love doing actually is in order to earn a living um i mean obviously as you as you already identified i don't just review i do lots of interviews too which keeps me very close to the to theatre professionals but i also teach now um and and i and teaching is a f- absolutely fantastic thing because I, I teach at arts ed the, the the drama school in west london and and I'm, so I'm meeting people before they enter the profession and then i mean i've been this is my fourth i'm going to my fifth year now of doing this and so i've seen my first lot graduate um uh two years ago two, two summers ago um and i've out of the 45 that graduated that summer um probably uh i've seen 30 of them in west end shows now i mean i know Arsid has has an un- uncharacteristically high uh, achievement rate um, um but it's extraordinary to then watch your kids as it were going into the, the business it's wonderful and does that affect you if you're there as a critic 
Yeah. Now and now you've got s- former students in the production. Yes. Do you have to switch off that part of your brain where you go, "Oh, they're doing so well." Oh, hang on, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, this yeah, no, absolutely. There's a challenge, and, and there's always a, there's always that challenge with when you see people you admire, or people you've gotten to know, um, and, and you have to steer a very fine line on that. Um, it, it, you know, it's interesting, and there, I mean, I've gotten to know quite a lot of actors, and I a lot of actors I, I call friends or friendly with. Um, uh, but my favourite story is is Jenna Russell, who. I mean, who, who doesn't venerate Jenna Russell? She's one of our stage goddesses. Um, but she actually has become a friend as well. Uh, and she was doing a play at the Almeida called Mr. Mr. Burns, which is a play I comprehensively loathed. And that night I came home and tweeted, I, I hated it so much that I wanted to gouge my eyes, uh, eyes out. Um, and Jenna brilliantly, she brilliantly tweeted back, and this is all public, on the public time timeline, she said, don't do that, you've got beautiful eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Kill them with kindness. Yeah. Uh, uh, kind, kind of, but, uh, but also it also gave me pause because it made me think, well, you know, you, you, you can put the stuff out there and obviously it's going to have an impact on the actors, um, but, but guess, guess what, we can respect each other. Yeah. She, she knew, knew that I was just doing my job. Um, and if I didn't like it, I had to be honest about it. Another another great story I, I, I love to tell is about Michael Grandage, who, again, another amazing director who's also an amazing friend. Uh, you know, we have lunch all the time. When he did a production last this year of Huey, a Eugene O'Neill play with Forrest Whitaker on Broadway, um, it was very troubled production. Forrest Whitaker didn't learn his lines. He was stumbling through the whole thing. Um, and he finally did get get there in the end but but you know he kept him go to the water cooler to get his prompts anyway so i went to see it um the night before it officially opened they let the critics in early there and michael was there and he saw me and he, his face froze and he said oh i really need to talk to you about the show he said but uh, i know you're working so we better not i said let's have lunch on friday so they opened the show thursday friday Actually, the New York Times liked it, which was extraordinary. Um, and I, and nobody understands how they liked it, but they did like it. Um, and on the Friday, I met Michael for lunch, and he said that this morning the press agent sent round the good, the, the, all the reviews. At the top were the best reviews, at the bottom were the worst reviews. He said your review is at the bottom. Now, well, I, I, the only reason I tell that story is because it sort of shows that I can can keep those two things separate. Yeah. Um, you know, he's a friend. I don't like the show. I have to say that. If your opinion's worth anything, you have to be able to say it. Um, I mean, I, another uh, one last story is um, Judy Kramer, the, the producer of Mamma Mia. She then went on to produce the dreadful Viva Forever. Um, and she came up to me at a first night after Viva Forever. Uh, and she, she she said to me, Shenton, I'm going to I want to cut off your balls. And I said, why is that? She said, because you, you, you were so unkind about you forever. And I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I just had to tell, I had to do, 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 do my job. And she said, but we're friends. And and I went home and thought about it. And, and then I thought, no, but friends tell each other the truth. And the next day I wrote a blog about that very subject. Hope you're enjoying the conversation. Stay with us and we'll be back to the chat in a moment. Before that, just want to remind you that another way you can support us is by visiting InsideTheWestEnd.com, clicking on that donate button and uh, helping us out. We make this for you with great joy, great pleasure, great enthusiasm and completely free. In fact, it does cost us a few bob to make it. So if you want to help us with that, do donate. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's completely free to subscribe and it just means that every time we release an episode, it will just automatically appear on your device like magic for you to listen to whenever is convenient. Now back to the chat with Mark Shenton. Theatre and any art form is subjective. And 
as a critic, you are obviously aware of this. For example, you mentioned Mr. Burns. I actually, I saw it and I actually enjoyed it. And that doesn't mean that I'm wrong. It just means we look in no, different ways. No, there's no such thing as right and wrong in no. criticism. So when you're writing with that in mind, as a critic, uh, are you sharing your opinion or are you telling someone what they should go and see? I'm, 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 all I can do is respond to the piece how, as it affects me. Yeah. And, and... You know, I don't. I don't. I. 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 I read. I mean, just just today, I was reading reviews of a show in Edinburgh that had a one star review from the from the Times and a five star review in Time Out. You know, we all think different things. What you have to do in a review, it's it's not a question of being right or wrong. It's a question of exp- stating your case, explaining what what it is you feel. Then the reader will eventually get to know you, hopefully, which uh, which is why established voices are important because readers readers will get to know who those people are when they can trust them. I mean, Nicholas de Jong used to be the theatre critic of the Evening Standard, and you know, one one could swear by him that if if he liked something, you would hate it, and if he hated something, you would love it. So it, it, it so you can you can will build a relationship with a critic that way um, and people build relations with us in different ways which is why at Edinburgh for instance I'm going to Edinburgh for a couple of days this weekend um, uh, one of the things in Edinburgh is there's all everybody's a critic up there and there's that million free sheets and million websites you don't know who any of these critics are so therefore their reviews are sort of meaningless mm-hmm. because you don't really know the context with which they're writing them um, whereas if you read somebody regularly you know even if even, not even if but if, if it's Quentin Letts in the Daily Mail you have an idea of what 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 his sort of opinion is so you have a benchmark for what that means i do genuinely and i'm not just saying this because you're sat in front of me if a show is opened i will go on twitter and i'll have a look at your review because i'm i value your opinion but with twitter because there's lots of voices is there a fear that in the same way that TripAdvisor is lots of voices saying what's good in yeah. terms of restaurants hotels yes. is there a fear that twitter does that with theater as in if everyone if you get a massive load of people saying We Were Rocky was really good fun, it doesn't necessarily mean that a critic would enjoy it. Well, well, We Were Rocky was an interesting case, actually, and I have cited that in an article. I wrote an article a few years ago called What's the Point of Critics? And I used that as a primary example because our reviews of that when it opened trashed it, basically. Um, you know, um, only, only hardcore Queen fans can save it from an early bath, said, said one of my colleagues. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, and it ran... 12 years in one of London's largest theatres um, and gave a lot of people a lot of pleasure. I mean, really, it really did. Um, and so, you know, I, whereas we'd written it off and I thought it was going to come off in weeks, if not, you know, I thought it wasn't going to run. <laughs> it is a terrible show, but, but it, it's, it's, it's full of full of great Scott songs and, and delivers an experience. I mean, right now, um, in the same theatre, The Bodyguard is on there. And, you know, and I actually really liked The Bodyguard. Um, it's got great... It's, and I thought, sat there thinking, why do I like this and I didn't like uh, We Were Rock You? I mean, maybe because there's a better plot, it's a better, it's a better book, a better, better, it's better written. Um, because the songs that aren't, I mean, Queen songs are monumental, as opposed to Whitney Houston, which is which are fine, but not 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 in that league. Um, so you know, I, I think We Will Rock You actually did sort of. It, it's not a critic show. It's not for us. Um, and you know, it 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 survived despite us. Um, it won. Uh, the audience voted it for the Olivier Awards for the audience award, um, and. That's that's in a different league. I think where critics matter is on the shows which need some help, um, where we can guide people towards a show like uh, a show that I became passionate about, Bended Like Beckham, for instance. Um, uh, of course, not enough people followed follow followed my lead to to go and support that, so it didn't really run. But I think it's a major mu- major musical, and that's when I love being a critic because I love being able to champion shows like that. 
likewise, when a show like Les Mis gets absolutely panned by the vast majority of critics and goes on to have such great acclaim, do you ever doubt your opinions? When you give an opinion which isn't in the popular... Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a hard one. Um, sometimes that does happen, and I, I do go back to see shows again. If I really hated them, I never didn't go back to Mr Burns, I have to say, but I have been known to go back to see shows that I really disliked just to make sure um uh, and because uh, you know you can things can go wrong on the night you may see a performance that doesn't quite work um i also do by the way think that uh, musicals do need to be seen twice pretty much pretty much all musicals apart possibly from exposure um pretty much all musicals need to be seen twice um, <laughs> um because because you, you need to get be able to uh there's so much to take in in a musical. Yeah. The score, um, the I mean, for instance, this week, Groundhog Day. I am going to before I review it. I will have seen it twice. Um, so because I bought a ticket to go in early, I was interviewing Tim Minchin. I wanted to do some research, be able to talk to him knowledgeably about the show. So I bought a ticket, and I'm now going to go and review it. Um, so and there's so many layers going on in a musical. So you do need to give them more than one shot. Of course, the public tends to see things only once. Maybe a critic who only sees things once is is actually the right critic. When I sit and watch a piece of theatre, no matter how good it is, I always have this feeling somewhere in the back of my head where I'm like, kind of looking forward to this being over. <laughs> so I, yeah. And then sometimes that doesn't happen. Yeah. Sometimes I, I don't know what it is, but I'm just completely absorbed. Extremely rarely. Yeah. Extremely rarely. We Even live, if I'm enjoying myself. We live for those moments. Yeah, we live for those shows. How often, I mean, you go to the theatre every day. Like, how, how often does that happen for you? Well, I find something to, to like... Uh, I, I look for I look for the good always. So and of course you know not every experience is going to be extraordinary. Um, but, you know, but we we are so blessed in London and New York where I go to a lot. We see so many good shows. We, we you know it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Those sensational shows, the, the Bender like Beckons, don't happen all the time. They couldn't have otherwise. You know if if if, if everybody um, knew how to produce uh, a hit show, everyone would be Carol Macintosh. And even he has flop has had many many flops. So. Um, yeah, you, you, of course you crave those great, great shows. But you know what? I, I think you have to enjoy the the ones that aren't so good too. You have to take what you can from it. I mean, even Exposure, which I I mentioned a minute ago, <laughs> even that one I gave two stars to because there was something to look at. There was something. There was something uh, that, that redeeming it. I saw a show this last week, Marco Polo, that only got one star. There was nothing to redeem that one, and that was a really hard slog. But are you familiar with that little? Oh yes, voice. yes, yes. The voice is there all the time, yeah. And 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 the thing that a lot of my colleagues will say is that the sweetest um, uh, words in the English language are eighty minutes no interval. Yeah. You, you you want to show it over fast because uh, rather I mean, those evenings when you arrive and they tell you it's three hours and 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 there's no escape. Ouch. So someone who goes to the theatre as much as you do, have you been able to spot future stars in their early stages? Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that does. I mean. Just recent examples. Cynthia Revo, you knew the first time you saw her on a stage that she was going to be amazing. Um, uh, that, that, that's just that's just one great example. I mean, it, it, uh, Kate O'Flynn is another one that, that I'm just uh, I just recently interviewed her for the stage. She's doing um, uh, Glass Menagerie in Edinburgh, and she did a play at the National a few years ago called Port by Simon Stevens, and I, she just blazed onto the stage. And I just, and, and actually the Nationals often that often happens. That Andrew Garfield, I never forget seeing Andrew Garfield in a play at the national again and writing a review which said we watch out we're going to lose him to the to the movies in fact we did um but he was absolutely amazing from the from the get-go and the flip side of that over the years has anyone surprised you 
as in the opposite you've seen them and maybe even not even remembered them being in something and then from nowhere 10 years down the line bang they're suddenly shot to prominence yes yes well i mean that obviously that's something that happens but you don't really know, that when that happens you will be told oh they were in that show but yeah. you had no you can't can't remember that they were yeah. um what i think is more interesting is the actors who you 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 chemic you have some kind, we all have chemical reactions to actors some some actors you acting stars you like some acting stars you don't i you know i never liked Aaron Rickman for instance even though that's a sacrilege to say that and then he did private lives uh, a production of private lives with Lindsay Duncan and i loved him in it um, bill nighy is an actor uh, i used to find so mannered um, and then he did uh, a, an amazing blue orange and he was amazing in so you know you can change your opinion about an actor and it's not just actors but directors oh yeah that side of things is it was is that the same case? Actually, once you get a, pre- a blind prejudice against a director, it's quite hard to shift. Um, but then, and, and, and likewise, if you if you really admire a, a particular director, it's very hard for them to do any wrong. Um, and you know, I, I you know I revere Howard Davis or, or, or Max Stafford Clark or whatever, and I think they're brilliant people. Um, so. But but of course they they will choose dodgy projects from time to time and then you know, nobody nobody can do anything with a bad show, yeah. Um, but but yeah I mean I obviously I, I go to the theatre between six and ten times a week on average um, and so I see a lot. What are you seeing tonight? Uh, tonight I'm at the Union, which is one of my favourite little theatres. Uh, they've just moved moved shop literally across the road. Um, we interviewed Sasha Regan in uh, one of our earlier episodes. Oh, right. And she was, it was just before the move, and right. she talks all about moving from that. Th- yes. She describes the theatre perfectly of what the old Union yes. was and the new one. Yeah. Well, the old Union was, to be frank, a shithole, but <laughs> <laughs> but a glorious shithole, um, and it was it was because it, it was just something so marvellous about their little room which they did in lots of different configurations. I've always taken great joy in going to the Union and seeing a show I've seen before on a big scale being done in a very small space with barely any budget. I... I love that, and I think that's yeah. part of the magic of that. that theater. It's a really, it's a really magical space, Mark. Because those productions are done on a far smaller scale and with very different constrictions, um, are you reviewing them in a different light, or are you applying the exact same? The, no, the same standards. The same. I'm holding to the to the same standard. Obviously, the show will will come up with different textures. It's going to. It, Seeing things that close and at close quarters can expose them terribly, but it can also um, make them really, really powerful. Uh, and actually, I, f- I find with the Sondheims, for instance, that they've done at the Union, uh, Michael Strassen, who's directed many of them, uh, he does amazing work. The Pacific Overtures he did was probably the best Pacific Overtures I've ever seen. I saw an amazing Sweeney Todd that Sasha Regan herself directed in, in the Union. Um, the Baker's Wife, uh, again, a Michael Strassen production, Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful piece of theatre, and actually, and that starred somebody who was the original Sophie in Mamma Mia. Um, so you know, that's a great thing about the Union, and I love, I love about London theatre is that the fact that performers will will you know go from a, a, a starring role in the West End to to appearing in the Union. There's no grandiosity. Um, there's a, one, my, one of my other favourite ones was uh, Vicky Lee Taylor. She was in uh, a chorus line at the London Palladium. She closed in the Palladium on Saturday. On Tuesday, she opened in on a clear day you can see forever at the Union. There's no bigger contrast. 2,000 seats Palladium, 50 seats Union. Glorious. What's been the hardest moment of your career? Hardest moment of my hmm. career? Um, well, the, 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 the really 
the biggest challenge I've, I've had, and and it was actually a brilliant challenge in the in the end because it changed my life, was um, the Sunday Express that I wrote for for eleven years um, um, fired me um, in two two and a half years ago. Um, uh, at, with, with with no notice at all, um, not because of making swinging cuts to budgets etc etc, but because of a very strange case of revenge porn, um, which is that uh, I've been very public about it. I w- I went public about it the, the day after they fired me. Um, the, uh, the the, the uh, an ex partner uh, reported to them that um, some some twenty year old pictures of me naked pictures of me had appeared on the internet. Um, and they thought this could bring them their newspaper into disrespect and therefore fired me. The hypocrisy levels were were off the scale because, of course, the owner of the Sunday Express, Richard Desmond, made his money through pornography. Um, he runs porn websites uh, to this day. Um, um, and uh, anyway, uh, be that as it may, um, uh, I, I lost that job after 11 years. But I, since then, I've done nothing but thrive. So um, it, it actually was a real. It was it was good to leave behind that paper. I probably would never have left it behind otherwise. It's a newspaper that 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 uh, kind of damaged me in a way that they it, 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 because it wasn't taken seriously at all. Whereas my other stuff now is taken much more seriously. Did it make you? want to leave the industry at all or, or no 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 never, uh... no actually uh, no because actually what was really interesting is that the industry completely rallied around me in a way that uh, that showed that what a community it is um everybody was was shocked and appalled and, and disgusted on my behalf um and actually what was really really interesting is that i had people supporting me people who who you know i hadn't hadn't been friends or fans before people who had had fallouts with suddenly would would were coming coming out of the woodwork to support me i didn't have one negative comment we have a question that we ask everybody, and we're particularly interested in your answer to this. Is show business a game that you need to learn how to play? Well, the, the, other, the, the crucial thing about show business is there are two parts of that word, show and business. There are, there, it is a business, and yes, you do need to play it. Um, um, uh, both from all from all sides, I'm very aware as a critic of the business side um, that my words have a commercial impact, um, and that I'm courted for those reasons. Um, and you've got to be careful about being courted because you know there are people who want to be your friend only for that reason. Um, um, and uh, but it's also crucially the, the the show part. And you know there's no there's there's no business like show business. There's no people like show people. Um, they smile when they're down. Um, <laughs> Um, Keep going. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, it's an inspiring world as well. Um, you know, we 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 live and breathe it. Uh, those of us who love it, um, and but you know, I do earn my living this way, um, and 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 that's that's a sort of important point because. Um, and you know, as do performers, and that's why there's a, there's a whole other argument about the no pay, low pay argument. At theatres like the Union, which I support, as you know, um, but theatres that don't pay people to be there, to work there, and, and and you know, here I am saying that I, you know, need to be paid to do what I do. Well, there's a, there's a worry that I'm being a bit hypocritical, asking actors to act for me for free, um, but 
I think there are other opportunities that those actors get and, and to practice their craft, to be seen, that to have other rewards. Um, I, I, I have a friend who was, um, who's, who's now at the National Theatre in Thrapani Opera, um, and he had, had not, he'd done West End shows in, in his 20s and 30s, an original cast of Miss Saigon, um, and, um, and then he, he, reached, he reached that period in his early 40s when he was in a fellow period, and he was driving cabs for a living. And he was see, he did a show at the Union. He was seen by an, an agent who, who took him on, and he's never been out of work since. So you know that, that there's there is that side, but you know that that was he invested in himself. He went to the Union to do it. Um, and in fact, uh, this is all very public because I wrote an article about the Union recently, and he spoke up to me about this very fact. Um, he's a brilliant actor called Nick Holder, um, and he'd been in the the last, not this current London revival of Jesus Christ Superstar, but the, the one of the Lyceum, um, and he was brilliant in that. So he, that was when he was a working actor then, and now he's recently been in London Road and Thrapani Opera. He's brilliant. And Nick Holder gives a wonderful account of that journey on the Actors Studio Flat podcast, yes. which we would highly recommend. If you enjoy Inside the West End podcast, I'd highly recommend that you check out the Actors Studio Flat podcast as well to hear that story. It's an amazing honour to have you, Mark, as a guest on our show you're held in such high esteem by us but also by people in the industry in general if somebody wants to work inside the west end be it as a critic as a creative or in any respect what is the one piece of advice that you would give to them right well uh if you want to be a critic i would say probably don't because there's no there's no not much of a career left there anymore but it's the same thing that that one says to actors i was actually asked by a bunch of um i went to see a community theater production of the hired man a few weeks ago and it was full of people who were thinking of getting into acting as a as a career and they said what's your advice and it's the same advice for, for actors or a critic don't but if you have to if you really have to then you must um because uh, you know, if you have the drive to do it, you you will succeed. Um, but it's such a, it's such a hard journey to get there, but it's worth it when you do. Don't, but if you really have to, then you must. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. A great pleasure. Inside the West End. Thank you. Mark Shenton is probably one of the busiest men in show business, so we really, really appreciate him finding the time to invite us around his flat. Uh, to chat to us so Mark we really appreciate it thank you we've told you about supporting us through Amazon and through the donate button you know how to do that also if Commitments is in the town near you come see it come say hi I'd love that Um, anyway check out our Twitter feeds to find out who's going to be on the show next week and in the meanwhile thanks for listening (laughs) 